Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. We are really excited to welcome and have Sarah Escobar, real estate leader extraordinaire, on the podcast with us today. Uh, Sarah has had an incredible career in the corporate real estate space and has held roles at Hulu, Honey, Netflix, Riot Games, in addition to doing all kinds of uh, real estate consulting work for various companies uh, in between and you know, at, at times during those different roles. We're super excited because she's seen so many companies make decisions in the corporate real estate world, whether it be on transactions, whether it be on workplace strategy or workplace design, employee experience. Uh, and she's seen what companies have done really well, what companies uh, haven't done so well, how the industry is changing. So I know this is going to be a really fun and dynamic conversation. Uh, John Jarvis, Owen Rice are with me here today too. But Sarah, welcome and thank you for being here. We're so excited. Thank you, really. Thank you for the great intro. Uh, no pressure there with, with that intro. <laughs> and I've known Sarah for, gosh, probably like a decade now. Uh, we've spoken on panels together. We've had all kinds of fun, uh, you know, real estate conversations over <laughs> lunch or at dinner parties. So I know Sarah is going to be, to even hype things up more, I already know she's going to be a really entertaining and great guest. But there have been some good spicy dinner parties together. <laughs> that is very true. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, okay, well, well, starting off, Sarah, I'd, I'd love if you can just, uh, you know, give our uh, podcast listeners uh, an overview of your career. How did you get started in corporate real estate? Talk, tell us about the early days at Hulu, which I, you know, know from our past conversations were so interesting. And, you know, walk us through everything that you've done over the years, just to give some context to everyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, my career is is a lot of being prepared and a lot of being lucky. Um, I started off my career in production and um, happened to meet Peter Chernin, who at the time was running Fox, and got a phone call saying, hey, we're starting this company and it has no name and we've only hired a CEO and he needs someone that can do everything. Can you do that? Um, and I was just crazy enough to say yes to a job offer like that. Uh, and so walked into an empty building that Fox had set up with six foot high cubicles lining an entire 35,000 square feet. Um, and uh, the CEO walked in about 30 minutes later and that company ended up being called Hulu. Um, so I was employee number two at Hulu. I had the really wonderful experience of, of getting to do anything for the first couple of years. Uh, and then two years in, I went to the CEO with a proposal to create the culture team. And this is before culture teams existed or people teams existed or workplace existed. And um, we, we really believed at Hulu that uh, helping our team to be as successful as possible was what was going to help us win. Uh, and I truly think it is what, what helped us win. Um, and so I, I created the team that, that helped us to do that. Um, I then about 10 years into Hulu, I guess it wasn't quite 10 years into Hulu, went and got my master's in organization development and started applying organization development and, and change management to workplace, um, in a way that I hadn't seen a whole lot of others do because workplace obviously is a very new field. Um, and then when I left Hulu, obviously went to Honey after that, which got bought by PayPal, uh, Netflix after that, which my first day at Netflix was March 16th, 2020, I believe. So we all know that day. 
Um, and then I was at Riot Games for the last couple of years. So doing similar roles within all of those where I, I was overseeing everything from the beginning of the funnel of workplace, which is what's the strategy we're going for, all the way through to um, real estate design, running the team, the facilities, uh, making sure that that our experience when we're on site and now when we're not on site as well is is high quality and helping people to be effective. That's uh, such an interesting uh, span of roles and companies. And you think of all the different people that work in corporate real estate uh, and just, you know, as, as you said, the the luck to end up at such really cool companies. Of course, <laughs> there's a lot beyond just the luck, right? But yeah. Um, you know, what are the odds that employee number two at an unnamed company becomes Hulu uh, right. and, you know, all of the, you know, awesome cultures that you've built along the way uh, is is really cool. So I'm excited to dig into all of that. Um, the first question we, we wanted to ask you is just, you know, obviously, when you're very early stages at a company, uh, particularly when you're rewinding the clock, right, going back to when Hulu was starting. Uh, however many you know years ago that was, you think about uh, how culture, how workplace strategy, how all of these things uh, were were really in their infancy when Hulu was starting, right? You created the team, whereas any one of these companies that are reaching scale today, like they're creating that team earlier, they're investing in that sooner. Uh, I'm curious, yeah. how did you go about saying and recognizing this is important, we need to do this, and this is what yeah. it's going to look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that fundamentally, uh, I, I listened. Um, there are a lot of people that struggle with listening and not just applying what they knew to be true in whatever past lives they had experienced. And uh, fundamentally at Hulu, there were a lot of smart people doing a lot of different things, struggling with a lot of different problems. And I was able to just step back and listen. Uh it was that paired with the fact that our executive team, um, Jason Kyler especially, is just so in tune with the fact that experience means everything. He, he looked up to, um, Disney and, and really has based a lot of his career on watching the experience that Disney has created for, for their consumers. And so I think those two things paired together um, gave me the ability to say there's something more here and I don't necessarily know what it is, but I'm willing to figure it out just as crazy as I was to say yes to a job that of someone that would do anything. I was crazy enough to say, hey, I'll figure it out. And and I think that um, that's part of who I am. I'm, I want to solve hard, hard problems. I don't want to be stagnant. Uh, I've ended up in a couple of, of consulting gigs and roles where I've been like, ooh, I'm getting bored. What do I do now? And, and I'm not someone that gets bored well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, figuring out how to say, how do we do this better is, is also just part of my persona. <laughs> how do you listen at scale? Right? Like it's one thing when you're at a 10, 20, even 50 or 100 person company, but. As companies go into the, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people, you know, as have most of the companies that you've worked at, how do you how do you take all that information at scale and then apply it to an actual real estate process? Yeah, it's hard. You you often get bombarded by the loudest voice in the room. Right. And and so or the executive voice, which is the person that ultimately, you know, says if you get to stay or not. And so figuring out if, if who you listen to beyond that loudest voice in the room and executive, I think is, is a trick that everyone in workplace, in real estate, in any service capacity 
needs to to be able to do. Um, and I generally do that with data. Um, so starting off with benchmarking data to say, hey, look, we need something further than just the opinion of a few people. Um, here's what it might uh, re- reveal for us if if we start looking at data from other companies. Um, and then gathering data from the company that you're working with, um, which I've heard more times than I want to repeat how many, how many executives have said, I don't want to send out a survey to the whole company. And, and my answer is always why I, you may as well understand and correlate and try and have something to relate your story to, um, that, that you can connect it to and that they can connect back to than, uh, try and mandate something that people aren't going to be able to relate to. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, right? Where people have this fundamental bias when they're making decisions on behalf of a, you know, thousand or 10,000 person organization. And uh, everyone, you know, comes to the table with a different understanding of how people work, their own preferences, a lot of which are, you know, determined by, you know, like commute, like what we were talking about before we recorded or mm-hmm. where their team is or how their team works or the type of initiatives that they're tackling at a company and getting actual data to make decisions off of is one of those things that it's so fundamentally simple of like, hey, let's make really good decisions off the best data, yet it's often neglected. And you see this neglected in so many different parts, whether it be uh, workplace surveys or it is just assumptions around maybe uh, labor analytics of where someone might locate. They might say, hey, you know what? We think these cities are good. And you sort of sit there and go, why? Like, why empirically do you just think that they're good? Why not validate all of this stuff with data? And one of our observations, and I know that, you know, you've listened to the podcast and, you know, probably recall some of these conversations that we've had about it is just the the amount of sort of we'll figure it out. We need to keep things moving versus having a strategy and a plan around how do we optimize this? How do we really make the right decision across all of these different areas? And our observation of a lot of real estate teams is that they have so much on their plate. They're just so busy taking care of the day-to-day that they don't really have that opportunity to be strategic. And when you think about building the right, you know, real estate portfolio and the right workplace uh, experience for your team, it's not like doing one individual thing right, right? It's really like taking this cumulative aggregation of thousands of decisions and optimizing every single one. Like that's how you create like the quote unquote, like perfect real estate strategy, perfect real estate footprint. It's not one decision. It's thousands or tens of thousands of data points, pulling them all together and then optimizing and so hard to do. And let's be honest, a perfect real estate strategy probably doesn't exist, <laughs> yeah. right? And and it's constantly molding and changing and evolving. And so it's not that you're looking at data once and making a single decision. You're looking at data constantly mm-hmm. and you're looking at inputs constantly and you're following your intuition constantly. And it's a balance of those things, not just data. Oh, I, I think there's a Great segue opportunity here um, in what I've been hearing uh, from both of you. And I know, Sarah, you wanted, you mentioned you want to make sure we're talking about workplace strategy, um, which we're broadly speaking about now. And I wanted to just at the beginning ask you a question uh, because it, I I struggled with it for a long time. Uh, but let me just ask the question and then I'll, I'll, if, I'll share my part of the story. How would you, what is workplace strategy? How do you define workplace strategy? What is it? So I think workplace strategy is really defining, first off, how people work. 
And I think that that is fundamentally the piece that many people are missing right now. They're saying, I'm going to say the place, but not to find the work first. And so fundamentally first defining how you work and then defining the places that will support that work. So if we think about workplace strategy, pretty simple. Workplace as a, you know, word is made up of work and place. And uh, it's it's a tool. The place is a tool that helps define how the work gets done effectively. That's really cool. And, and let me quickly add my piece of it. And I'd love to hear your response to this because um, I never I struggled to understand exactly what it was and how we use it. And and then our architect, we had the good fortune of stealing an architect away from uh, one of the big shops. And um, and he explained to me one day, he said, no, John, it's pretty simple. Workplace strategy is data. And by that, he means we go in and talk to uh, the, the leaders of the organization and ask about the experience of coming to work and the use of the workplace or the work. And we listen and we take notes and then we develop a report that says, Here, here's what we heard or, or we write. And to the extent that we, we, we ask the questions, and I kept hearing you talking about data, which got me thinking about this. You gather the data, you report back what you heard, and if that's right, okay, that's now going to inform the decisions that we make uh, and the negotiations that we lead. So I, that was an epiphany for me that, oh, workplace strategy is data. I wonder if you agree. I, I think part of it is data. I don't think it's entirely defined by data um, because, frankly, work is done by humans and humans are not entirely defined by data. And so you have to not only have the data piece and the quantitative, you also have the qualitative, which again is data, but you then have the intuition of where you're going in the future, which no one knows, right? And so you're, you're really thinking about how do I take all the inputs and turn that into something that makes sense? And so I think one of the major inputs is data. Absolutely. Um, but you have to think about the inputs beyond just data as well. That's awesome, Sarah. So. As someone who understands workplace uh, organizational uh, organizational development like you do, um, I imagine those that are listening to this pod right now, especially those that are you know executives or corporate leaders that are responsible for the office space, the culture within their organizations, are want to know like how can these organizational development strategies be adjusted to effectively maintain engagement, right? Um, especially in the light of like work from home satisfaction and the connection among those employees that are, you know, remote workers, because we all know some are permanently remote, some are remote a couple of days a week. And, yeah. you know, doing so, I should say, by prioritizing aspects such as work-life balance, you know, acknowledging the professionals, those that are in the office, those that aren't, and, you know, still providing opportunities for personal advancement, because there's some that say, if you're not in the office, you're not advancing your career, you're not being noticed. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that because I think that's the biggest question we have from our clients is, is that for those people that aren't in the office, you know, what can we do to maintain engagement? Again, engagement, satisfaction and connection. You know, it's funny. I was actually reading an interesting stat this weekend and the engagement for employees that work on site, whether they are remote capable or not, engagement is lowest for those employees. How crazy is that? That's a, a stat that I was reading from Gallup and I was like, huh, that's interesting because it's it's about the resistance, right? And they're, they're saying, oh, I don't really have to be here all the time. And so I'm going to do the bare minimum. And maybe not all of them are saying I'm going to do the bare minimum, but they want to be heard. And I think that, um, it, we're in an interesting time where employees have never had a voice 
in the workplace and in companies the way they do now. And it's like this collective voice. Everyone is protecting themselves to, to say, I, I can't be the one to break this. I have to be the one to continue to protect this collective voice. Um, the, within that same study, that same Gallup study, there was also an interesting stat that said remote workers feel least connected to the company purpose, right? So you have to then go, okay, if engagement's lowest for those that are on site, but remote workers don't feel connected to the company purpose, how the heck do we make this all come together? And it is a hard solution, right? It's, it's, everyone wants to find the easy solution of just come back to the office, but that's what existed then. That is not what is going to push us into the future. We have just found too much of a, a collective voice from workers to, to have that be the future. And, and frankly, we've progressed especially knowledge workers, have progressed in a way where we don't need to be in the office all the time anymore. And so, you know, I think I think the way that we will ultimately determine and the way that I have seen companies ultimately determine what works for them that has been able to endure um, is defining work first. So using a beginner's mindset, you know, really falling back to that that Buddhist philosophy. I know I have a Buddha in the background of, of my, my screen, but falling back to that Buddhist philosophy of a beginner's mindset and testing out what might work with small groups and then measure, measure, measure. A lot of times people forget to measure beyond are people coming on site or not. And frankly, we had gotten a little bit lazy prior to the pandemic, where you would see people there, you would watch them work, and you would think, dang, they're great, and I really like them. But they weren't always producing what needed to be produced, right? Like, management is not watching. It's actually being involved and knowing what's going on and making sure that the work is happening and holding accountability. And then once you do realize what works for your company or what works for your team, however however you structure it, getting clear with the entire company, including guardrails. Um, it's, it's funny because, uh, at, at one of the companies that, that I was with developing their workplace strategy, one of the guardrails was you have to live in the same state as the office you're assigned to. And it was, people were so angry about it, right? Like, why can't I move back to where my family is or to somewhere that I want to be? And, Ultimately, when we looked at it, we said there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of legal and HR work to determine and to, to enable people moving to all of those those different states or cities or countries or whatever it may be, because that was a global company. And we said, we're going to preserve those hundreds and hundreds of hours of work until we know this is going to work. So once we told that story, people went, oh, I didn't realize it was that hard. I didn't realize there's different legal requirements in every state and different payroll requirements in every state and different HR requirements in every state. And it does take a lot of work. So sharing that knowledge that you've gained and, and letting employees be part of the story helps bring them along with you. And I have seen more lasting effects to that than anything else uh, in trying to to promote new workplace strategies. So I think one of the consistent themes here that You've learned and experienced probably different levels of commitment from the different companies that you've worked at over your careers is this idea of constantly analyzing data, using that data to create sort of a new forecast of, hey, this is where the business is going. This is how we work. This is our employee experience. Here's how we improve it and adjust and optimize and all that. So 
as we all know, doing these real estate projects, they don't allow for constant adjustments, right? I mean, most of the time, these yeah. larger companies are going in, they're signing a you know large lease, there's tenant improvement costs, there's um, you know furniture costs, there's a long-term lease commitment, there's the disruption of you know most companies are not uh, renovating their offices every single year. So how do you reconcile all of this uh, constant information gathering um, that's really happening at um, this period of time before a real estate transaction? And then you do the real estate transaction yeah. recognizing that your information is going to be um, maybe not wrong tomorrow, but at least out of date and potentially changing in a way that's material, certainly over years. So how did you think about that? And how do you think about that? Um, in getting all that information and then using that to inform what the right real estate transaction is, recognizing that that's not very flexible, typically. Yeah, it's funny because this this used to be a pretty easy formula. And Tucker, I think you actually posted the easy formula somewhere once that I was like, nope, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Now the formula is so much more complicated because you're looking at how many people are going to be on site. Can we desk share? What are the different types of spaces that are needed? Um, You know, how... Uh, you're right. The The workplace has become infinitely more complicated and complex. Um, I think fundamentally, the field of real estate is going to need to become more flexible. We are already seeing the desire for lease terms going down significantly because there are a lot of lot more people testing, are we in the right solution or not? Um, I also think we need to define and design better flexibility in spaces. So it used to be seas of desks with conference rooms next to it, right? Now we're starting to see more of those gathering spaces, defining more what happens at the desk versus what happens in a meeting room. Um, my entire two-year tenure at Riot Games, I said, I'm going to do this without a desk. I would prefer not to have one. And I sat outside and kind of it used myself as an experiment of does this work? And guess what it does? Because we have such great communication tools to say, where are you? And such great tools to connect, even if you're not in the same place, that it, it worked just fine. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, the five, 10 year leases, you, if you, you have them, you need to design them more flexibly. If you don't have them, you are generally going to go towards a shorter lease length. And that is where the industry is right now. That's definitely been our observation, too, that people that have uncertainty around their long-term needs are just generally going to sign leases that are shorter in duration mm -hmm. or provide the ability to terminate or expand or adjust in whatever fashion uh, might be needed. And I think that, that uh, we're, that's being contributed to by where the economy's at right now, too generally your real estate's top three on your P&L. And last thing you want is to have something top three on your P&L being misused. And so, you know, that's going to be another thing where you have to hedge your bets. Yeah. One of the things that's a bit fascinating to think about is that uh, I, I would also make the argument that it's not as if companies have only just now realized the need for flexibility. I think companies have recognized that the value of flexibility is significant at all points in the business cycle and probably all points over the last, you know, however many, you know, decades that a company may have existed, right? But what's changed is that there is a, a new market dynamic when you're in the market for space, say you're, you know, taking 50,000 square feet in Los Angeles or Seattle or wherever, right? 
you go into that market and it, and before you might've been in a situation where there's only a couple of spaces, maybe you're competing and the landlord say, Hey, look, this is a 10 to 15 year lease or don't, or go to another building. And there's only a couple of buildings you like. So you say, okay, it's that's table stakes. It's a 10 to 15 year lease. And now virtually every single one of the, those landlords is willing to work with you, albeit maybe with a lower tenant improvement dollar contribution, but more or less they're willing to work with you. And then as a company, you have the decision to say, okay, here's what our out-of-pocket is on a three-year deal. Here's what it is on a 10-year deal. Is that flexibility, which we've now quantified into a number, while we're looking at all of this other data, do we think that this is worth it? And we're finding with a much higher rate than before, it is worth that extra money for these companies. So that will be interesting to see how that evolves. And this is cyclical, right? So if if you think about the last downturn in, in 2007, 8, um, you know, we, we had the same situation where landlords were willing to work with you because there was the, the market had taken a dip. And then for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, which is one of the longest stretches I can remember where it was truly a landlord market, we haven't had that opportunity. So it's cyclical. And, and, and I think it continued to will be. I, I think it will continue to be. A lot of people keep saying corporate real estate is dead. Not even close. Not even close. I think we're going to have to figure out how to use it differently, but it's still a tool that is very useful to companies. It seems the biggest misconception around those corporate real estate's dead, the office space is dead and all that is this confusion between the damage that the office market and office property owners are going to face over the next decade and confusing that with people just aren't using office space anymore, which is not the case at all. People are still using office space just in a very different way. And they're having to to reconcile all of these much more complicated things, right? Yeah. And one of the things I I know we're going to talk about, and John, I saw that you wanted to jump in with a comment here. So we can go to John here in in just a moment. But like talking about how do you balance uh, like the Gallup poll, what you're talking about, people that are in the office or some of the least engaged, but people that aren't in the office are some of the least committed to the company's purpose. How do you reconcile that and reach a balance where you have a really productive team that's contributing? I mean, sometimes when, uh, you know, the three of us, you know, being, you know, corporate real estate brokers, like you just start thinking about like office space and you can sort of lose sight of the, the, you know, forest through the trees here where it's like at the end of the day, office space is a tool to make companies more productive to achieve their ultimate business goals. And if you don't come at every sort of workplace problem through that lens, then I think you make really bad decisions. You're saying, oh, yeah. well, we need 200 square feet per person and we have 100 people. So we need, you know, X amount of square feet. It's like, no, no, no. Like that, that formula might work for certain types of companies, but for the vast majority, it doesn't. And it's a different formula with all different, you know, new um, and much more challenging to quantify inputs. So Tucker, I think that, you know, when when we're thinking about the new definition of how to define what office space you need, I think we need to define the why first. When do people need to be in office? Why do they need to be in office? Which I think is the biggest part that I'm seeing companies miss. They're saying you need to be in office three days a week. Who gives a crap about days per week? It's like, it's all about who else is going to be there. What is the connections that I'm going to get? Um, who am I going to be collaborating with? All of those sorts of things. So that why is the first super, super, super important piece. I think the second important piece of that is operationalizing it. So just because you give the why 
doesn't mean that people know how to perform against that why. And so it's, you know, really defining, I think the operationalization is the how. And so your synchronous collaboration moments, your asynchronous collaboration moments, how do people focus best? Like, I think about this all the time because I think about workplace all the time. I'm a huge workplace nerd, but most people don't. They're thinking about how to build a game or produce a TV show or whatnot. I mean, those are obviously the businesses I've worked in, but most people aren't thinking about this all the time. And then adding on, in addition to collaborating and focusing, being social and building relationships is work, period, the end. And I keep hearing people say, like, why do I need to be social at work? Why do I need to build relationships? Like, or I can do that via video. Yes, you can do that via video to an extent. But you know what? There is value to understanding a person's body language, to getting to know them, to having a meal. Like, this is why you go out to meals with your friends and you don't just do a video call. Um, and then, you know, other, other big pieces of work are, are learning and rejuvenating. I'm quoting Gensler here. So let me just give the, the credit where credit's due. Um, because they've done a lot of research on, on the different workloads. And, you know, some of those, yes, are better done at home, but some of them are not or need to have elements that are done within the office. So this is operationalizing. Beyond operationalizing, you then have to resolve the resistance. Because, frankly, every person will fight for what they need. This is part of the human condition. <laughs> we are all a little bit selfish. And that's okay. That's, you know, part of being human. But there's there's rigidity and exploration. And, you know, I am going to be very rigid about what I believe unless I know the story, know how we're maybe going to operationalize that story, and then are willing to explore it. Right. So, so building that willingness. Um, but knowing that my company still understands me. This is the part where you have to listen, 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 listen and relate. Um, so, you know, what, what employees need for life and, and what employees want for work. And then I, I think a big piece that companies aren't defining well yet is what companies want from their employees. Right. Uh, it's, it's, you want people to be committed to the mission and, and culture of a company, not just punching in and punching out. And I think that companies haven't gotten good at saying that yet. Like, I want you to be committed, not just do the work. And, um, and some of that commitment is showing up. So beyond that, um, you know, resolving resistance piece, you're then really sharing knowledge. And so you're, you're saying, okay, now what story are we collectively? telling uh, and, you know, getting commitment to it, holding accountability to it, building collective approaches to success, building those tools and systems that that give people the ability to refer back, right? Because frankly, you could say this is how we work, but then you have one new person join and all of a sudden it's not how you work anymore because the, the one new person has changed the entire direction of, of how you're working. So I think all of that needs to be done before you're even looking at place. I love that. Um, I especially love the concept of resolving resistance. Um, and I believe the resistance that we're resolving is a resistance to change. And mm -hmm. I guess I would pose a question to you, Sarah. Do you, 
and I'll give you, uh, so my question is, is the change that we're experiencing today, is it profound or is it subtle or maybe somewhere in the middle? But because I have this notion that what we're going through is pretty profound. And it, if you think about the way we work and the way we used to work and this idea that we would gather in these massive city centers and the, and the idea that maybe today asking an employee to commute for an hour so that they can be on their computer here versus being on their computer yeah. all day there, that's kind of a broken model. So the reasons we're coming in, the why, you know, I think are changing. And I, th it, I think it's profound, but I wonder what you think. Is it more on the margin? No, I would agree with you that I think it's profound. I think we're going through, I, I, I'm writing a book right now about workplace and my um, co-author and I this weekend, she goes, I think we're going through the fourth industrial revolution, which in its entirety is profound, right? And so, um, and, and I agree with her. Um, I, I think that we also have five generations in the workplace for the first time ever. And five generations that all work very, very differently. Uh, so again, lens towards profound. Um, I think, you know, people don't embrace change that is forced upon them. They, they don't. I mean, think about that. That's the best way to, to garner resistance. <laughs> if you really think about it. And we've had so much change forced upon us. Uh, and some of it, you know, was societal. Like when we were all forced to work from home, we had to figure out how to make that change a positive. And we did. In the midst of a global pandemic, people figured out how to make that a positive. Um, but, you know, we then tried to go back to old ways of thinking. Uh, and that put a, a generalized resistance to, to anything new. So I, I really think that we're, we're going through a major structural societal change now. That is my U.S. point of view as well, um, because I think that, you know, in in countries where you have dictatorships and, and things like that, people are back in the office and, you know, they're they're reverting right back to the old. But that doesn't mean that we're seeing better work or efficacy from them. So I think that they will ultimately end up following the good work that is done by companies that figure out how to develop unique solutions that actually work in a balance of human and business efficacy versus those that are just going back to the old. That's such a good explanation of how to think through that. Uh, and Sarah, I, I think that I properly hyped you up now that we're, you know, like 35 minutes in here. I feel like people are like, okay, Tucker was right. Like, he, he knew Sarah was going to deliver. Sarah's delivering. Um, a question that, that I had for you is it, it seems that the role of a director of real estate has changed so much, right? You rewind even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I feel that if your title is like global head of real estate for some big company, right? That you were mostly in charge of transactions, Right. Hey, we've got 100 locations. We need to take care of these different things. We need to, you know, make sure leases aren't expiring and, you know, put our renewal option in at the right time and all that. Um, and now those same responsibilities exist. Yet there's all of these other things, all this other data collection, all this other optimizing. Um, we've seen this like crazy evolvement of the role. Um, how do you think that the role is going to continue to change? You know, a, particularly if we're in a fourth industrial revolution, how's it going to change over the next five to 10 years? 
God, I wish I knew how it's going to change for the next five to 10 years. I, I have my hypothesis, so I'll, I'll outline that. But I think, you know, the focus of workplace professionals now has become people and their relationship to work and how they're resourced to achieve that. Right. So it's, and, and I don't use resource just as other humans. I use resource as place as well. So we're, we're thinking about all of that. It used to be the building and how it supports work activities. So we have completely shifted our focus areas, um, from the building to the people. Uh, it's also about, you know, now proactively defining ways to assist the employee population in being more effective, which you know, yes, it used to be part of, of the solution, but it was much more reactive previously in solving concerns of the building, hot, cold, all of those sorts of things. Now we're saying, how can you be more effective at home? How can you be more effective during travel? Um, you know, it's, it's really proactively thinking about place, space, tools, systems, all of those things. Um, and our ROI used to be reduced expenses and building efficiencies, and is now gains around organizational effectiveness and employee experience, which, you know, is in turn promotes growth and profit, of course, but is a lot harder to measure than reduced expenses. And so uh, I, if I think about workplace five, 10 years from now, I think that we are going to have to figure out how to be the amalgamation of all of the service providers within a company. Now, that is a heck of a large burden to put on workplace professionals who used to focus on a building and on transactions. And so I think that there is a lot of upskilling that is going to have to happen within the workplace profession. But I am personally not seeing any other service organization within companies willing to do it. It is a, I, frankly, because right now it's a little bit of a bomb to step on because no one wants to take on the responsibility of being the bad guy of, you know, the forcing people to come in or telling executives that remote is the best, you know, solution or, or whatever that might be or no matter what path you go down right now, you are the bad guy to someone in workplace. Um, but I think that we do have a huge opportunity to become um, a more foundational part of the solution of the future of work. And it's scary to me right now because I don't see all of workplace grasping that opportunity. And I get why. It's, it, it, like I said, it's a bomb to step on. Um, but if we don't do it, I don't know who is going to. And what I'm seeing is that when we don't do it, executives step in and do what they believe is right without necessarily listening. Um, and so we have to find that intermediary in the workplace profession that helps executives understand what's coming from the rest of the organization to produce something that is a benefit to the entire organization. That's great. And so, um, Sarah, I got a question for you. So again, I have my hat on as if I'm the real estate director for a large company with multiple offices and facilities yeah. around the country. So let's say I'm a real estate director who has been operating for 20 years or 10 years, like Tucker explained, and you explained more transaction base. What, what are people, um, or what are companies rather, or those in the real estate director role, in your opinion, 
What are they overlooking? What are they underestimating when planning for designing, mm-hmm. implementing a workplace strategy that, um, you know, is, is more akin to how we're working today and in the future? And how can they address these blind spots? And then um, and ex- as an example, it just comes to my mind, that could be designing uh, physical space that uh, supports and complements async collaboration, um, like you talked about previously. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on that, because I can imagine we've got listeners that are having this exact question in mind right now um, that are trying to pivot and do what's best for the company, but just don't have all the answers. Yeah. And I think I, a lot of what I've seen is that workplace people are afraid of stepping on toes, um, but then no one else answers the question. So the, the biggest toes that I've seen that workplace people are afraid of stepping on is the HR team's toes. HR historically is thinking about things like wellness and, um, uh, let's see, helping people uh, to understand if they're successful and doing reviews and, and all of those sorts of things. So the more people-oriented type of things. But how you relate that to how people work is an entirely different field. And so if you're thinking about the the points in any person's day and saying, okay, if I come into the office, I park, I get out of my car, I go in, who do I want to see? How do I want to interact with those people? How do I want to run into them? What discussions do I want to have? There's there's a different way to program those things. And you do have to think through a day in the life of a wide variety of people and 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 problems and um, goals. And so, you know, there can be very simple solutions, things like you notice that many people are coming in for lunch or that lots of people gather during lunchtime and you want to figure out how to help those people connect. You can do simple things like put games on the lunchroom tables or, you know, have signs on the lunchroom tables that say, like, if you're interested in fashion, sit here. And, and you know, that sort of thing can help people connect. I don't know why I picked fashion, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> and and then there's the more difficult things, which are helping people to be in the same places at the same time. Um, you know, we've we've known for years, if you feed them, they will come. And so that one is, of course, the low-hanging fruit. Um, but figuring out how to have some of the more complicated elements draw people together, I think is, is one of the big things that people in workplace are missing. Um, I do think when it comes to async collaboration, async, you know, by default means not in the same place. And so it's, uh, you know, tends to be solutioned by technology. Um, but that is not something that people that work in IT are necessarily always thinking about. So programming that as async collaboration, how does that happen? What's the process? When should you reply? Is it a 24-hour turnaround? Is it a 48-hour turnaround? Is something that I think workplace needs to be involved in so that you can think about the process of how things happen and the expectation versus just go do async collaboration and no one knows what the heck that means. So, which is what I see happening a lot. I think the new paradigm of being a director of real estate and the new challenge that this person in the organization faces is really, how do you get all of the information from all different areas of the company, pull it in, collect data, synthesize that information, and be able to put that information into a strategy that actually makes sense? 
And then once you have that strategy that makes sense, be able to take that and get approval from whoever you need to get approval to make it happen. That is so much harder than the actual execution. And it's interesting because, you know, Owen, John, Brian, and I, you know, work with all different types of companies. And it's, it's especially cool for you, Sarah, because you've seen so many different companies do this. And I'm sure one company did a certain thing better than others. And you can say that probably about every company, right? So you just, you just start thinking about, you know, how, like how, how that impacts the organization, right? Like how, like that process for everyone. And one of our observations from working with a lot of these companies is that generally the most successful companies, um, the way their real estate strategy manifests itself is based on a lot of communication. And it's almost like, uh, like, uh, of course, real estate is a big contributor to a company's success. We all believe that, or we wouldn't be doing this, you know, professionally. Right. But I almost feel like the correlation between a really well-organized real estate department, um, it's correlation, not causation, right? Like the real estate team is very effective because the entire organization is really effective at communicating and the real estate is just, you know, it's, they're able to do their job. And of course you could have a bad director of real estate that has great information, but misinterprets it and all that. But without great communication without, within an organization, it's really hard for a real estate director to even be effective at all. How, how are they going to get the information and, and, and handle it? Yeah, very well said. I mean, I think we, we all know communication is key, right? And it used to be a whole heck of a lot easier because you'd overhear something. I don't know how many times I've been in the office and overheard like, wait, could I be involved in that? I need to understand. Um, but it's, and it's harder now because you're not just in the room. You have to actually set up a meeting and talk. But I, I think we, we have more variables now, as you were saying it, the variables used to, not include as wide of a range of opportunities as we have now. Um, and we probably should have been looking at these variables earlier, but we now have that opportunity and, you know, real estate directors or heads of workplace and real estate or whatever it might be are in the midst of upskilling to where we know how to take advantage of those. And so I think that you know, the, the industry of workplace is going through a major change of figuring out how to take advantage of the opportunity that fell into our laps. <laughs> what do you think the biggest opportunities uh, and skills um, to focus on upskilling are for directors of real estate? I think uh, the, the absolute biggest one is communication and, and putting things into something that people can digest. Uh, as you said, there is a ton of information that we need to take in, translate, tell a story with, and then make digestible. And we're, we tend to be um, influencing executives first, which are not the easiest group to influence. They, they tend to come in with their own ideas of what they think might work. And, and they have a lot of experience that those ideas are, come from. Um, and then you go from influencing the executives to influencing the team or managers usually. And those managers, of course, have the different level of resistance because they're hearing all the complaints from their team and they don't want to be hated. Um, and then you're influencing the team. And so I think the other biggest piece of advice that I have is to help your company think about bottoms up rather than top down because, which is, crazy hard. You have to earn the trust with the executives first that they will trust what you are saying 
can come from the bottom, be translated correctly, and then go up to them to, to what the solution could be. Um, and frankly, both sides, whether you go top down or bottom up, are bias. And so you have to be able to, to weed out that bias as well and somehow marry it into a story that can actually be digested. What do you think about this crazy notion I have that um, as you're talking about the evolving role of the, the real estate team and the workplace team, um, that it, it, it's becoming, I believe, about a responsibility around employee well-being. And isn't it interesting to think that in the remote context, it's easier to miss some, some clues, some red flags. It's easier for little bad habits to creep in. But this idea that we're literally responsible for the employee well-being because when our team is thriving, we, we've hired brilliant people. And when our team is thriving, they're going to do their best work. Uh, we know what they're capable of. So it's fundamentally about you know, employee well-being. Or am I going too far? I can just see a CEO saying, are you kidding me? Now I need to be responsible for your well-being. But in truth, yeah, that's why you, as a workplace team, we get in the middle of that and we deliver a, a space and an environment and a culture that allows our team to thrive. Employee well-being, what do you think? I'm going to tell you, I debate back and forth on that one as well, because often I think we're going too far. There, It is each individual's responsibility to protect their own well-being. That's it. But, but... It is often that the amount of work or the expectation of work or the way that work is done has been set in a way that they cannot protect their own well-being and do their job well. So I do think that we have a responsibility in the workplace to define the expectation well enough that we can measure it and help people protect their own well-being by saying, look, I can't complete this in this amount of time, or I, it, this is too complicated, or, you know, lower burnout rates, things like that. If you look at, um, you know, there was a, a the, the whole, when we, when we started the eight-hour work week, uh, or eight-hour work day, sorry, we, that was created with eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of what you will. That was, that was the whole, like, message behind it, right? And this was quite a while ago, but um, that was a very clear delineation of there is eight hours a day for you. That delineation sense has disappeared, right? And, and what you will is something I think that people are fighting for now and saying, this is what I need to be healthy. Um, and I think that companies do have the opportunity to say, okay, how do we help balance that for you? And if two hours, let's say you commute an hour per way each day of what you will is taken up by commuting. Yeah, I'm going to fight for that because that's a 25% of what I, uh, of my time. So I'm going to fight for that. Um, so I, while I don't think workplace is in charge of wellness, because my God, that is way too <laughs> broad. I do think that we need to think about how defining the workplace impacts people's ability to protect their own wellness. One of the things that I think about often, and this is a context of, you know, the company that the three of us work at and the work that we do for the companies who are clients of ours is that 
like ultimately every single person in or, in the organization has the same job and it's to help the company be successful. I mean, ultimately, whether mm-hmm. that be, you know, driving totally. shareholder value or, you know, what, however you define the company being successful. Certainly we know uh, what a company being successful means for a publicly traded company because that's, you know, very, you know, clear and spelled out. But everyone has a different role in helping the, the company be successful. Everyone plays a different part in a- achieving that mission. And when you think about your role, either as a, you know, director of workplace or director of corporate real estate or, or as a, you know, outside service provider, you know, consulting and helping a company. And it's really the question of how do we help this company be successful? How does what I'm doing contribute to the success of the company? And you start thinking about the decisions you make through that lens, you know, to John's point earlier, you know, is it the responsibility of a company to take care of their employees' well-being? Well, it might not be the responsibility, but it's certainly a place where you can optimize. I think responsibility is a heavy burden, right? Everyone ultimately needs to be responsible for their own well-being, right? Like that's, that's up to you. Um, and that's true in, in work and outside of work. And of course, there's great resources to help you. But, you know, ultimately, you know, as you said, Sarah, it's, it's up to them. But it's such a big opportunity to help uh, for companies to help their team members be able to do that more effectively for themselves so they can bring more of themselves to work, be more productive and contribute more in their job of helping the company be successful, whatever that role may be on the team. Well, and I think that's the the biggest confusion that I've been seeing since the pandemic is a lot of people say this company prioritizes our team first. And I'm like, no, they don't. (laughs) I'm sorry, but no, they don't. Like, ultimately, this team doesn't exist if we don't have profit. Like, does not exist. So let's talk about first, how do we balance what is best for the company and the employee and make sure that we're all working towards the same outcomes? And so I, I think that's that's the best you can do when you're <laughs> working for a business. We can't be in charge of everyone's well-being. And I think some companies are trying to. And and it's it's not working out for most of them that I've seen is it, because you can't be responsible for each individual. You are always going to have to balance. Yeah, you think about a lot of these companies that have the most crazy perks and, you know, the, you know, Facebook's, Apple, Google's of the world and uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how maybe some of the perks have even gone too far, right? But you start thinking about the perks and it's it's not like, you know, Tim Cook is sitting there being like, you know what? I just want everyone to love working here so much. Like, that's all I care about. Like, it's all very selfish and very self-serving. And fortunately, there's an intersection where it's good for the company and good for the employees, right? But if that intersection didn't exist, those types of things wouldn't be there. Right. It's this calculation of, hey, in order to get the best talent, we need to do these things. In order to keep the best talent, we need to do this other set of things. In order to get the most of, out of our team so we can develop these amazing products and market them well and have you know great customer adoption, we need to do all of these things. And it just so happens that doing all of these things that employees also really appreciate um, are in the best interest of, of the company. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's an entitlement of Hey, they need to do this because how else am I going to live? <laughs> right. It's like, no, they're doing this because it's profitable. A lot of those things were originally created to keep people at the office longer. 
Mm-hmm. It was back when, you know, the offices were full, everyone was using their desk, and you could keep people at the office longer if you served them dinner at the office and if you did their laundry so that they didn't have to go home and do it and those sorts of things. So it was created to keep people there longer. That is not necessarily what people are aiming for now. If you look at the the top benefits that people um People have reported that they value within a company. Flexibility did not exist in that list in 2019. It is now in the top three. And so, <laughs> so I think we need to look at those perks again. And, and many companies are looking at those perks again. So I'm not, I'm not saying they're not, uh, you know, there, there are many places where dinner has gone later in the day or some perks have disappeared. Um, because the, the goal is not to keep people there longer anymore. It's to, have people there and have them be productive while they're there, but they can get their work done in different places. They're focused work. And we know that. Yeah. If, if you have, you know, say just to use an easy number, say you had a million dollars that's just spent on, Hey, this is investing in the employee experience so we can get more productivity out of our team, right? A director of real estate and a workplace team, they're in charge of what, whether it's a million or 10 million or a hundred or whatever that million, whatever that number is. They are in charge of really allocating that capital in a manner that's going to produce the highest return for the company. And what was right last week or last year is not the same today. None of these data points are static, which, you know, I think my biggest takeaway from this episode, you know, listening to your thoughts on, you know, workplace and, you know, this role, Sarah, is that data is among the most important things to be focused on for somebody that's in this seat. Right. And, and not just a point in time, not just, Hey, we, we did an employee survey back in, you know, 2023. So we know all, right. It's, it's about constant refinement, constant data collection. Um, and then also recognizing that, um, what people say versus what they want versus what they do are not always aligned, right? Like there is, there is a fundamental bias that we all have when we're reporting things and being able to get to the root of the problem, understand it, and then execute on it, I think is really what separates the, um, you know, good from great, from amazing directors of real estate. Uh, and it's everything you've shared today has been so insightful and interesting. And I can't wait for uh, to, to hear some feedback from our audience once this goes out. Yeah, me too. Please share it with me. Okay. Well, that is just about it. Uh, I did not want to wrap up the show without first asking Sarah what this book is about. I know you mentioned earlier that it's coming out of the summer. Uh, if it's anything like this conversation, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are, you know, pre-ordering on Amazon, like you've got to get this information into our hands ASAP. What can we expect to read about and learn uh, in this in this forthcoming book? Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. The book is coming out this summer. It's called Work Then Place. Um, and I am nothing if not pragmatic. It's it's very much a guide to developing your company's unique strategy that will endure and evolve as your company evolves. So it's uh, it's very much aligned with the conversation that we've had and gives people checklists to, to start to do some of this. Um, so I would love to come back on when when it comes out and talk all about it. Great. Well, we look forward to having you sometime this summer. Look forward to reading the book. I know many others will too. And thank you again for coming on. This was an amazing episode. And as I said earlier, I can't wait for everyone to listen. 
Thank you. I appreciate you all. It was a, a great conversation. I also wanted to mention that you can find Sarah Escobar's book, Work Then Place, on Amazon. The way to find it would be to just type in Work Then Place Sarah Escobar into the Amazon search bar and the link to pre-order the book, which releases on July 16th, will come right up. We have also included a link to pre-order the book in the show notes uh, below. Uh, so make sure that you check that out if you have interest in reading what I'm sure will be a really insightful uh, and entertaining read. Thanks again.